So tonight is week six of reading and interpreting the Bible. Uh, we're, we, we talked on the Gospels last week, and we pulled uh, from a different book last week. So we're back into this book, which is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. So we'll be pulling uh, from that tonight, and we're looking at the law, um, the daunting task of the law. You know, you get all of these uh, so-called Facebook prophets and Facebook scholars that say, you Christians are hypocrites because you pick and choose what you believe in the Bible. You don't follow this. And they always pull something out from Leviticus or they pull something out from Deuteronomy and they're like, you're a hypocrite. And it's like, tell me you have no understanding of the Christian faith without telling me you have no understanding of the Christian faith. And we're gonna look at the law tonight um, and typically, uh, the contents of the law are found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these books are often referred to as the Pentateuch. Now, again, uh, if I misspe- <laughs> misspell this, uh, U-C-H, right? Uh, the Pentateuch. So when we talk about the Pentateuch, we are, we are talking about five books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these books are the foundation to the Jewish religion as they tell the story of God and God's relationship with his people. And if we're going to read and understand the law well, we have to start with the law's role in Israel's history. Because Israel's history is our history. We, 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 we come uh, from the same history that the Pentateuch talks about. And we don't want to read from our context only, right? We want to learn the context of the people that the Pentateuch was written about and also who it was written for and the purpose in which it was written. The law, so if we're talking through this tonight, we're going to talk about the layers of meaning that maybe uh, this has, but, but the law was a gift from God to his people to establish the ways they were to live in community and with him. And the law was given for the purpose of loving God and loving neighbor. And we're going to look what Jesus says about the law right here. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what he says in verse 40. The entire law and all the prophets and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Jesus, in essence, is saying the purpose of the law is to love God better and to love neighbor better. Week one, as we talked through 
the importance of of reading and interpreting the Bible faithfully. We said the purpose of reading and interpreting the Bible is to grow our love for God and to grow our love for neighbor. St. Augustine has infamously said that, that uh, in, in essence, that uh, the proper hermit, hermeneutic to read the Bible, the proper way to read the Bible is, is, uh, is, is that it increases your love for God and increases your love for neighbor. If it ceases to do both of those, you're reading it wrong. Because the purpose of the law, right, is given to love God and to love neighbor. So let's talk through, uh, let's, let's decide it. What is the law? I think there's three important clarifications that we need to make as it pertains to the law. The word law has many different meanings, has more than one meaning in scripture. And so when we're talking about the law, we could be talking about five different things. And so uh, the five different things we'll be talking about with the law is the law could refer to the uh, 600 plus different individual commandments the Israelites were expected to keep to show their faithfulness to God. Exodus 18.20 says, Teach them God's decrees and give, give them these instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. There are these 600 individual laws, and each law could be called the law, that would teach them conduct and teach them how to live. The second, the law, refers to all the laws collectively. So though we're talking about the law, it could be one of these 600 it also can talk about all of the 600. So the law kind of encompasses all of that. Matthew 5, 18. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. And he's speaking about God's law. What is he speaking about? All of the laws, not just a specific law. Number three, uh, the law, when we're talking about that, is interchangeably to use to mean the Pentateuch. So we say the law. It can also refer to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch is known as the book of the law. Joshua 1.8 says, Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. The instruction is given to Joshua to study the book of the law. What is uh, he being instructed to study? The Pentateuch. The law. Number four. In the New Testament, the law is used uh, to refer to the Old Testament covenant. You may know this, you may not know this, that, that there's an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. We're going to talk about that tonight. And the New Testament would refer to the law in moments speaking of the entirety 
of the Old Testament covenant. 1 Corinthians 9.20, Paul writes and says, When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. Under what? What is the law? The Old Testament covenant. The fifth one, when we talk about the law, we could also be talking about The law is used by some New Testament believers to refer to the interpretations of the rabbis about the collective law. By the first century uh, Jews, uh, in first century Judaism, by that time, they would take these 600 laws and there would be these lists of interpretations that were thousands of what it mean what it meant to hold these 600 laws faithfully and so they expanded them out and so like we see in Acts chapter 10 28 Peter tells them you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you but God has showed me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. What is he speaking about? He's speaking on about the law and their interpretation of the 600 that then was the codes for which they were living their life. So, the first important thing for us to realize is that the law has many different understandings and meanings when we talk about it. The second thing about the law we want to talk about is uh, the law in the Pentateuch. I'm going to do some abbreviations of Pentateuch. So when Pent's up there with a dot, it means Pentateuch. Sound good? And the commandments of the law are found almost exclusively in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So why is it that Genesis is included in an understanding of the law and also understanding of the Pentateuch? And then why is it that the material in the Pentateuch is more than just a list of commands of do's and don'ts? You, you, you read in Exodus, there, there's narrative in Exodus. There's the, the, they're taken out of Egypt. The Israelites are taken out of Egypt. They're took into the wilderness and And you've got segments where the law, which is the do's and don'ts, but yet all of this is called the Pentateuch, and all of this is called the law, because the Pentateuch is narrative, and and the law was given, the Pentateuch was given to show the Israelites' history with God and his history with them. Because the law is more than a list of do's and don'ts that they were trying to keep The law's purpose was to show the history they have with God, the history that God desires to have with them, how to live in in right connection with God, but also how to live in right connection with other people. There's a relational aspect to the law 
that when you get going down the list of do this, don't do this, that you skip out on. When we understand the law in this light, you understand that this is what Jesus was talking about altogether from the very beginning. He was talking about that, that, that the law's purpose, that, that we in our humanity, we can't keep the law, but, but he says he sums it in loving God and loving one another. So the Pentateuch is a narrative about God's story with his people. And then the third uh, thing about, about the law is how are we supposed to interpret it? As Christians today, h- how are we supposed to approach it? And this is what really this class is about, right? Reading and interpreting the word, proper exegesis, proper hermeneutics, proper uh, approaching the word uh, on its terms, but also through a theological framework and, and look. Um, you know, how are we supposed to interpret sections that are clear that say don't eat pork or, self, or shellfish? How are we supposed to interpret when the Bible says to tithe and bring all your crops into the storehouse? I mean, we don't have crops. I don't think there's any farmers in here. How are we supposed to interpret when, when God says, keep the Sabbath for it's holy, but we meet on Sundays? How are we actually appropriating what's written in the Pentateuch as the law? How are we appropriating this in, in our lives? Now listen, it's worth noting, as Christians, we don't express our commitment to God by keeping the law. Israel expressed their commitment to God by keeping the law. You were a good Jew, a good Israelite, because you kept the law faithfully. You remember the story of the rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says to keep, keep the law and to love God and love neighbor. And, and he says, well, I've done all of that. Then Jesus goes a step further because though this man had done that and fulfilled the requirements of the law, he did not enter into what the law was trying to form him into, which was having a heart to give everything for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God. Jesus says, and sell everything you have and come and follow me. And the man turns away and drops his head and chooses not to follow Jesus. And... Uh, so how are we as Christians, this man expressed his commitment to the law, but how are we as Christians, how do we express our commitment to God? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we don't sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins anymore. You know, um, I'm thankful because if I wanted to be a priest back then, I'd have to be a pretty good butcher. And uh, I, love, I love to cook like briskets and stuff like that. But I'm not very good with blood, and uh, I would become disqualified because I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, I. I would. I for sure would butcher some stuff, but it wouldn't look pretty. Um, but we don't sacrifice animals for sins. So, so what is it that Jesus meant when he said in Matthew five eighteen, "I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, 
Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So Jesus is saying this in his lifetime. We understand through the book of Hebrews that Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament, fulfilled the law. So then we approach these questions to find out how the Old Testament functions for Christians. How does the law function for Christians? Now, I want to give us six guidelines for understanding the relationship Christians should have to the Old Testament law. Number one, we need to understand the Old Testament law is a covenant. And a covenant is a contract in essence. And it's a contract between two parties where both parties have obligations to fulfill. It's a covenant where the Israelites had to do something on their part and then God would do something on his part. There was a covenant is like is a relationship where you're both putting into this. And we see time and time again, right? The Israelites would would turn away from God. They would stop fulfilling their end of the ordeal, their end of the covenant. But God was always faithful to his end of the covenant. In fact, he, he kept his end of the covenant by sending Jesus, therefore fulfilling the entire old covenant. And, and, and we understand that the, the Old Testament law is a covenant between God and his people that Jesus has fulfilled. What makes the law important is its covenant nature. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand that I'm saying, well, Jesus fulfilled it, so we don't need it. Or Jesus has fulfilled it, therefore it is a lesser uh, word of God, if you will, than what we have in the New Testament. Even though we aren't required to keep all of the law of the Old Testament law, it's still important for us to read and understand so that we might understand God's story amongst humanity. Because the law is still our story. It's still a part of our history. It's still a part of Christianity. Number two, we need to kind of understand that the law is, uh, is not, or the old covenant, see we'll use these terms interchangeably, that the Old Testament is not our testament. Well, what do you mean about this? Are you saying that the Old Testament's not for today? That's not what I'm saying at all. The word testament is another word for covenant. And the old covenant is not our covenant. Because we have a new covenant that is not secured with the blood of goats and lambs and bulls, but we have a covenant that is secured with the blood of Jesus Christ. One sacrifice for all time. Year after year, in the old covenant, the priest would have to go and make 
petitions to God by shedding blood. The blood was so vast that, that the blood would stream down from the temple and flood down into the city. That's how much blood they had to shed to hope that their sins were forgiven as a nation. But Jesus went to a cross, shed his blood once and for all. A perfect sacrifice. Because Jesus fulfilled all the law, we should assume that none of the old law is binding to a Christian unless, this is a big unless, and we're going to get to this tonight, it is renewed in the new covenant. If, if, if the old uh, covenant is, is not renewed in the new covenant, we're going to talk, well, what, what is renewed in the new covenant? Because there are, there are uh, uh, laws, if, laws, if you will, that have been renewed in the new covenant. But we need to understand that the loyalty that God expected from the Israelites is still expected today. But how the loyalty is lived and played out is a different story. So I, what I want us to do is, don't, it's easy to look at the law as a list of do's and don'ts. We want to get behind the law. We want to understand what is it that God was calling the Israelites too, because when we get behind the law, we understand what God is calling us into. So number three, uh, things that we just need to uh, be aware of, uh, six guidelines for understanding the relationship Christians should have with the Old Testament law. Um, there are two kinds of Old Testament stipulations that have clearly not been renewed in the New Covenant. Meaning, these are things that as Christians we are not bound to. It's clear in Scripture that we are not bound to these. The Israelites, they had civil laws and ritual laws. The civil laws have been fulfilled in Jesus. The ritual laws have been fulfilled. They've been canceled out, if you will. Now, the civil laws, these were specific penalties for specific crimes in the Jewish state. Someone would sin. Depending on what that sin was, you pull them into the courtyard and you stone them to death. That, those civil laws do not apply to what they've been fulfilled in Jesus. Why? Because they have not been renewed in the New Testament. Ritual laws, these were how the sacrifices were to be made, but also how they shouldn't be made. Well, why, don't that, why does that apply for us today? Because Jesus has fulfilled the ritual laws by being the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Now, these civil and ritual laws make up the majority of the 600 plus laws the largest part of the Old Testament laws. We need to understand number four, part of the Old Testament is renewed in the New Testament. Part of the Old Covenant is renewed in the New Covenant. For instance, the Old Testament ethical law 
has been renewed in the New Testament. The ethical law has been renewed. We share an ethic, a moral ethic with Judaism that's been around for 3,000 years. It hasn't changed. The church's view of uh, sexual immorality has not changed for 2,000 years and had not changed for 2,000 years prior to that. Why? Because they've been renewed in the new covenant, but they were also grounded in the old covenant. So lying, still bad. Accepting Jesus and continuing to be a liar uh, is not what it means to accept Jesus. Stealing, still bad. (laughs) Sexual immorality, still bad. Because each of these has been renewed in the new covenant. Another understanding that's good for us to have, number five, all of the Old Testament law is still the word of God for us even though it is not still the command of God to us. It's still a part of God's word to us, for us. To us. For us. But it's not God's ex- explicit command to us. So, you don't have to... So when we talk about the Sabbath, we talk about uh, keeping Saturday. Well, the early church, Jesus rose on a Sunday. The early church gathered on Sundays to celebrate the resurrection because Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. It's renewed in the new covenant by us gathering on Sundays. We cannot know the significance of our story without knowing where we come from. And the Old Testament can, and it will show us the goodness and the character of God that he's called us into relationship to have. So though we may not follow every law that is written because it's been fulfilled, doesn't mean that law is useless to showing us the purpose and the plan of God amongst the story that he's written with us. Number six, only that which is explicitly renewed from the Old Testament law can be considered part of the New Testament law of Christ. For instance, the Ten Commandments. It's been renewed. Still a part of the law of Christ. Still important to us. Still important for how we live our life. Still what Christ calls us to. Still he calls us to to that way of living. Now I want to look at the, the role of the law in Israel, but also the role of the law in the Bible. So the role of law in Israel and the role of the law in the Bible. It would be wrong, again, to conclude that the Old Testament laws are not valuable for us today. It would be wrong to, when Paul's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, and he says, 
all of God's word is inspired and God-breathed. He's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament because he's writing to Timothy. They didn't have the letters. We talked about this in like week one or week two. They didn't have the letters like we have right now. They were just forming the New Testament. So he says that the old, that he said when he says that, that all of God's word is inspired, he's speaking about the Old Testament. So he's a New Testament believer that is saying that the Old Testament is still inspired. The law is important for us to know so that we can have examples of God's character. Because the law represents an agreement of loyalty that Israel had with God. And though we are under a new covenant, does not mean that God does not desire the same loyalty. In new ways, even. But he desires the same loyalty that he desired from Israel. So let's look at two basic forms of the law. You hanging with me? It's a lot of just knowledge, and then we'll, we're going to get into... The practical kind of it kind of seems to always go like this. Um, two basic forms of the law: the apodictic law, and then we're gonna look at a moment at the casuistic law. I actually said that right. The casuistic. No, the apodictic law. Let's look at uh, Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to read verses 9 through 14. Okay? You there? Or if you want to uh, put turn it on your uh, phone or... Because we're going to look at, at this just for a moment. I want, you to, I want you to see this scripture in front of you. If, if you have your Bible or if you're looking in a phone, Leviticus 19 verses 9 through 14. All right, I'll put it on the, on, the, on, the, on the board, so I'm going to start reading it. That's what the Lord says. When you harvest the crops of land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. Do not pick, do, and, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not deceive or cheat anyone. Do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not make your hired workers wait until the next day to receive their pay. Do not insult the deaf or cause the blind to stumble. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. Now notice this. In these five verses... The phrase, I am the Lord, is repeated three different times. 
Why is it that God is pausing saying, I am the Lord as he's giving the commands? Because it shows how closely tied to Yahweh's character these laws are. Don't do this because I am the Lord. My character, if you will, is attached to how this, this stuff functions. And when you do this, you're attaching yourself to my character. When you refuse to follow these commands, you are detaching yourself from my character. Now, these commands are direct. They're clear. It doesn't get much clearer than do not steal. Don't cheat. It doesn't get much clearer, but they're also a term... called paradigmatic. In paradigmatic, this word, it means to set a standard by an example rather than by mentioning every possible circumstance. It, it, it means that, that this Leviticus 19 verses 9 through 14, the apod Dictic law is, is giving an example to follow. It's not saying, uh, for instance, um, in verse 9 through 10, it says, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. Do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your, with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines. Do not pick up the grapes when they fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Now, notice it's only the field crops that are being used in verses 9 and 10. So does that mean that those that harvest figs or they harvest olives, that they don't have to abide by this law? Oh, that's only the great people. I'm an olive guy. Right? Like, that's not what it means because it's paradigmatic to say this is the example the purpose that we are setting this example for is not the do's and don'ts, the purpose is that you may bless the poor and the foreigners that are living among you. You see how the law was, was, was written to do, to, to, to cause a change of heart that could not be changed. Because as humans, we go, well, I completed this stuff, so I'm good. Well, I went out and I got everything I need and I left a little bit for the widow to come and grab from the field uh, and so I fulfilled it, but yet I walked by her and didn't recognize who she is and care about her. Therefore, I've neglected the law altogether. Because the purpose of the law wasn't that it would just be, uh, we could check off to-do lists. The purpose is that we would be carried into a greater love of God and greater love for another. It was to show us that the poor matter, the foreigners matter, but yet, it led to something that we could not keep. Jesus came and fulfilled it. But how many of us still create lists that we check off to go, I'm good. I didn't curse today, I'm good. I didn't uh, look at that, I'm good. But yet we still harbor hate in our heart, bitterness towards someone else. When we do that, we're living 
by the letter of the law. Now, these commands are parad- paradigmatic in that they're giving an example to follow in all areas. They're not just explicitly saying which areas. So when he says, don't insult the deaf or the blind person, does not mean that you can mistreat the lame or other people with disabilities. It's, 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 it's giving an umbrella. It's giving an example. And these laws, though limited in wording, they're meant to be comprehensive in spirit. They're trying to articulate a deeper meaning. That's why David could ponder on the law of God and just be amazed by it. I think sometimes we think of like, oh man, like, that was so boring. How do you live under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament? It's so boring, you know, all these lists of do's and don'ts. But when you get to the deeper meaning that it was causing you to do it, 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 it there, there's a, a, a humility that comes because you realize the deficit that you have as a, as a human. Now let's look at the casuistic law. Apodictic law, casuistic law. Now turn me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 17. There you go. If you're following along, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 17. I want you to read this same thing we did last time. I want you to have it. I want you to follow it with us because we're going to reference back and forth with this a little bit. And engage. We're engaging with the law, right? The Lord says, If a fellow Hebrew sells himself or herself to be your servant, some translations say slave here, and serves you for six years, in the seventh year, you must set that servant free. When you release a male servant, do not send him away empty handed, give him a generous gift from your flock your threshing floor, and your wine press. Share with him some of the bounty with which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. This is why I'm giving you this command. Notice that. What was the purpose of the command being given? For redemption. Verse 16 But suppose your servant says, I will not leave you because he loves you and your family and he's done well with you. In that case, take an awl, push it through his earlobe into the door. After that, he will be your servant for life and do the same for your female servants. Now, casuistic law is case by case. They're specific. For instance, uh, in the Old Testament, there were uh, these sites set up. They were called cities of refuge. If you killed someone, you could run to a, or if, if, if you killed somebody by accident or on purpose, you could run to a city of refuge and find refuge, wait a trial or, you know, what have you. There were different 
case-by-case situations. Um, You couldn't just be, uh, you weren't supposed to at least, you weren't supposed to just be accused by one person and sentenced to death. There had to be two or three people. There there were case-by-case laws. The elements in this law of the casuistic law is conditional. And the casuistic law represents a majority of the 600 plus commandments. They are specific in nature. But though though these are conditional on specific circumstances, can we still learn from them today? I would say yes. And we're going to look at this passage of what we can learn from it. Although no one in this room will ever own slaves or have servants, we see God's provision for slavery under the old covenant was not meant to be brutal, harsh, or punishment. From this passage in the law, we see that actually God loves slaves. We learned that if slavery was to be practiced, that it was to be done in a way that the slaves became better off than they were before. That the way that these individuals were meant to be treated was where they were treated so well that they wanted to stay and be a part of their family. That they were to be treated like a brother and a sister, not as so much subservient to them. Now notice this, these are are Jewish people selling themselves into slavery because they, they, they they can't make it, they don't have a means for it. What's amazing in this moment is that when their six years was up and they served, and if they wanted to go, what was the, 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 the master, the boss, supposed to do. Verse 14, give them a generous farewell gift from your crop, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Share with them some of the bounty that God has blessed you with. Remembering that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this command. It was a means in which people could exit poverty to be redeemed and positioned in life to get ahead. The purpose and the intent was not subservient. The purpose was redemption. And what's amazing is that the slave owner never truly owned the slave. It was the decision of the person to leave or to stay. It doesn't matter if this commandment is for us directly What matters is that we learn from this law about God. That God demands fairness. And his ideals for the Israelite society and God's plan for redemption of all people. Now, you can appreciate the Old Testament laws that were 1,500 years before Jesus that that were written. You, You can appreciate them more when you learn about other ancient laws that were happening in that time. 
We'll just read, uh, give you two examples of ancient law codes that were written. Uh, this first one was dated, is dated around eight, 1800 BC. And this is from the laws of Eshunanan and Shunana in Akkadian law code. And it reads this, if a free man has no claim against another free man, but seizes the other free man's slave girl, detains the one seized in the house and causes her death, he must give two slave girls to the owner of the slave girl as a compensation. If he has no claim against him, but seizes the wife or the child of an upper class person and causes her death, it is a capital crime. The one who did the seizing must die. Now notice this. If you killed a slave, just replace it with another slave. If you killed someone of a higher economic bracket, you paid for that life with your life. These were the laws that were happening outside of Judaism. The second one is uh, from a law code of Hammurabi, a Babylonian king who enacted the law of the land in 1726 BC, writes, if a free nobleman hit another free nobleman's daughter and caused her to have a miscarriage, he must pay 10 shekels of silver for her fetus. If that woman died, they must put his daughter to death. If by a violent blow he caused a commoner's daughter to have a miscarriage, he must pay five shekels of silver. If that woman died, he must pay half mina of silver. If he hit a free nobleman's female slave and caused her to have a miscarriage, he must pay two shekels of silver. If that female slave died, he must pay one-third mina of silver. Notice the class distinctions in each one of them. When God gives the law to Israel, he's saying, I don't see life how you see it. I don't value a nobleman more than I value a slave. I don't value someone that has a lot of money over this. God says, uh, do not murder he gives no stipulations with it. When God says, uh, don't steal from someone, he gives no stipulations as to who, and, 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 and the penalty is the same across the board. Murder's murder. The Israelites, when they received the law, were, were living in such a counterculture way that everyone was getting treated, supposed to, let's clarify with that, because not everybody was, but God's intent was for everybody to be treated the same across the board. Only fines were given as punishments for the deaths of a slave or a commoner. But if you killed someone of higher nature, you were to die. And the Old Testament law, it moves society forward and recognizing that everyone as equals, no matter their social status. Do not murder means against anyone. <laughs> there is no qualification based off who you could murder, who you cannot murder, based off of sex 
or social status. It's revolutionary. Let's look at a couple ways that the Old Testament law benefited Israel. You're going, okay, like, this is great, but, but some of these laws were written for specific purposes. Let's look at the food laws. Leviticus 11.7 says, The pig has evenly split hooves, but does not chew the cud, so it is unclean. I'm just thankful that I was born in 1991 because I love bacon. And the poor Israelites could not have bacon because uh, it was a part of the food laws. And the food laws weren't meant to be controlling as much as they were meant to be protective. Now, what's fascinating is through science and through history, we can see something that the Israelites couldn't even see. We can know something that they didn't know. And the majority of the foods that were prohibited in the Old Testament, in, in the Sinai Desert, in the land of Canaan, these foods would, be, would carry diseases. That pigs were, were in, in that environment, they are more susceptible to diseases. So then, when the Israelites would eat them, they would get sick, they would die. That, that, that the food laws, in, in one aspect, were protective Hygienic, if you will. Prohibited animals, uh, that there were prohibited animals to eat. You weren't allowed to eat them. They were uneconomical to raise in the climate. Meaning they didn't raise uh, the economic stature of the people that were raising them. They wouldn't be worth raising them. Prohibited animals were also used by cults. For sacrifice, pigs used as sacrifice by the cults. And the people of God were not meant to be like the people of the world. They functioned a different way. So the food laws, it's pretty, pretty good. Pretty, like, for their time, pretty progressive to, like, stick by. Uh, the next uh, group of laws, right, the, let's look at the, the shedding of blood laws. Exodus 29, 10 through 12 says, Bring the young bull to the entrance of the tabernacle where Aaron and his sons will lay their hands on his head. Then slaughter the bull in the presence of the Lord at the entrance of the tabernacle. Put some of its blood on the horns of the altar with your finger. Pour out the rest at the base of the altar. See, sin deserves punishment. When my daughter does something wrong, it would be unkind for me to let her keep doing that. Because eventually, if she keeps doing that, it's going to lead to her, to her harming herself. My daughter runs out in the middle of the road, and I don't somehow punish her for not running out the road. She keeps doing it. Eventually, she's going to hit by a car. Eventually, she's going to die because... Daddy didn't help discipline. Now that sin has entered the world, sin deserves punishment. Hebrews 9.22 in the New Testament reiterates this by saying, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. 
So the shedding of blood benefited Israel because it made propitiation for their sins, made a way of forgiveness for their sins. Now, there's a couple unusual prohibitions. For instance, like Deuteronomy 14, 21. It just says, you must not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Cool. We won't cook a goat in its mother's milk. This is a weird weird thing. This was a command, though, so the Israelites would not engage in the rituals of other cults around them. That, that um, in, in one of the ites, you know, they're all ites, Canaanites, and you know what I'm talking about, the ites. Uh, what they would do is they believe that when you took a young goat and you boiled it and cooked it in, uh, in its mother's milk, that it was actually giving... Um, uh, magical powers of fertility to the people. And God's saying, no. One, that's witchcraft. We don't, we don't do that. Why? Because you trust me. You don't call to these other gods. I am the Lord, your God. Laws about giving blessings to those who keep them. Just a little later on, Deuteronomy 14, 28 through 29 says, At the end of, the th- of every third year, bring the entire tithe of that year's harvest and store it in the nearest town. Give it to the Levites, who will receive no allotment of land among you, as, as well as to the foreigners living among you, the orphans, the widows in your towns, so that they can eat and be satisfied. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work. All of Israel's laws were designed to be a means of blessing for the people of God. God made a promise to Abraham that that I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the nations. And the purpose of Israel's laws were to live out this blessing. Specifically here in Deuteronomy 14, the tithe belonged to God. Now, such a command was not restrictive or punitive. You weren't punished because you didn't bring the tithe to the storehouse, but rather it was a vehicle in which God was choosing to bring blessing. So you could engage with it and you would be blessed or you would choose to not engage with it and roll the dice of chance in your life. I'd rather live by grace than karma, amen? I'd rather live by grace than just the throwing of dice up against the wall, the purpose. So we're, we're closing this out um, to kind of reiterate everything that we've, that we've talked about. I'm going to give you a list of do's and don'ts. You know why? Because we have been talking about how bad the list of do's and don'ts are, but as people, we like the list of do's and don'ts. Do see the Old Testament No, let me say it like this. Do you see the Old Testament law as God's fully inspired word for you? The law is still inspired for us. Don't see the Old Testament law as God's direct command to you. No, I still don't think it's a good idea to go and get a young baby goat and its mother 
and milk its mother and then cook the baby goat. I don't think that's, that's good. That's not kosher, right? Like, that's, like, don't do that still. Number two, do see the Old Testament law as the basis for the Old Covenant and therefore Israel's history. The law was an invitation into relationship, an invitation into a movement with God as his people. Don't see the Old Testament law as binding on Christians in the new covenant unless it is specifically renewed in the new covenant. It's a hot topic in our culture today, but a a historic sexual ethic has been renewed in the new covenant. There are certain actions when it comes that are sexual in nature that we are not allowed to do. Why? Because it's been renewed in the new covenant. Because that is not God's design for our lives. Number three, do see God's justice, God's love, and his high standards revealed in the Old Testament law. But don't forget to see that God's mercy is made equal to the severity of the standards. Do see the Old Testament law as a paradigm, providing examples for the full range of expected behavior. Paradigmatic. That's a word for us to, to say this week, right? Don't see the Old Testament law as complete. It is not technically comprehensive. If the 600 laws, oh, I erased the 600. If the 600 laws were enough, they wouldn't have made thousands more by the time Jesus arrived on the scene. Number five, do remember that the essence of the law, the Ten Commandments, the two chief commandments of loving God, loving our neighbor, is repeated in the prophets and it's been renewed in the New Testament. Don't expect the Old Testament law to be cited frequently by the prophets or the New Testament. The last do and don't. Do see the Old Testament law as a generous gift to Israel that brought about blessing when they obeyed it. Don't see the Old Testament law as a grouping of arbitrary, annoying regulations limiting people's freedom because as we've gone through the night that wasn't the purpose of the law in the first place the purpose was that there might be redemption out of our depravity of humanity we are a deprived species we are a deprived people And I'm thankful Jesus came, amen? Everything we've talked about tonight, Jesus fulfilled. We could not hold all 600 laws perfectly, but Jesus did. And his sacrifice is once and for all, amen? Amen. All right, hey, let's do uh, do Q&A. So if anything specifically about the law, uh, anything like that, you can even, even if you want to, uh, you know, you've had a week to think about our talk on the Gospels last week, 
Uh, I really enjoyed that talk with the Gospels. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite ones that we've done so far. Um, but anything, anything that we like, uh, any questions that you might have, would love to uh, answer them if I'm able. We can kind of talk through. Yes, we have two. So let's start with Ms. Skritev and then Jolie. Yes, ma'am. So she asked to talk about the paradigmatic law, right? Leviticus 19, uh, in essence, it's giving a list of things, um, this specific law in Leviticus 19. So it's not only applying to this, we're just using this as an example. The example, uh, in essence, it gives an example, a specific situation, but it's not meant to be closed in on just specifically what it's talking about. It's giving an example for how we are to follow and live our life. Jesus would give an example like this. Jesus would give an example of um, the good Samaritan. You walk by this beaten man, and it was the third man. It was the Samaritan that came and helped him. Now, we understand that that's an example for us to follow and live out our life. It's not like only when you go and uh, you see somebody beaten, like you should help them. Because the chances are you're probably not going to walk around town and see somebody be in line on the ground. But the chances are you will see somebody that doesn't look like you, come from the same demographic as you, and you're meant to help them even when others choose not to help them. Does that make sense? So it's uh, um, enlarging. It's an example for us to apply in many areas. And Leviticus 19 specifically was that the widow and the foreigner would be taken care of. That they weren't supposed to harvest everything of their crop. They were supposed to leave enough that they were taken care of. We see in the story of Ruth that Boaz was a righteous man. Why? Because Ruth was found in his field picking the crops that were left over. What's amazing is that God used this law to bring about the Savior of the world. That God used the law that, that um, Boaz was, and Ruth were David's great-grandparents. That through this law, God had a purpose to bring about, which was the salvation of not just Israel, but the world. Julie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah. 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 Totally. So, so there were all of these different interpretations of, of how were we supposed to apply this for our life, you know? And so you had uh, the infamous ones that we know of, the Sadducees. And the, by the time Jesus comes around, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are kind of like the two main ones. They weren't the only people that had unique interpretations of the law. Um, uh, there's one specific group. I, I can't. I had it on the tip of my tongue. I think it starts with an N. But I can't, I can't remember of it. But anyway, there, there are all these different groups and sects of like how they interpreted the law. 
And so they were faithful in their own way, if you will. And that's how the law became. It became all of these different ways of, well, how are we going to interpret this? How are we going to interpret that? And there, there, it, um, uh, that's, why, that's why we need somebody to come and fulfill it for us. Because there were all these different, what does it mean to, like how, it got, got into, like, how many steps can I take on a Saturday to really mean that I'm resting? You know, sometimes I, I wish we could have that, you know, or say, hey, I can't take any more steps today. I'm, I gotta, I gotta, gotta rest, right? Um, and so it's like, how, how would they know what to do and how to do it? Just through the interpretation of the rabbi, and the rabbi you were following. And then this rabbi comes along from Nazareth who says, I'm gonna sum up all the 600 laws and the thousands of laws that you've created as loving God and loving neighbor. Because you've been focused on the law, but I'm trying to get behind the law to what the law is trying to cause us to do. That's why this rabbi has made an impact and literally flipped history in two. And went to the cross and died and rose again and sends us his spirit to testify that he's still alive interceding for us. Does that help answer the question? Cool. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, 10 commandments are given, right? And then there's other laws like reading in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that are given. Um, mm-hmm. So were these. To Moses by God. So all these 600 laws mm-hmm. were given to Moses on top of the 10. Yes, ma'am. Uh, well, Leviticus 19. Don't imagine it like the Ten Commandments. He comes down and he's got two tablets. He doesn't come down and have 600 tablets. Uh, Leviticus 19, when you harvest the crops of your law, do not harvest the grain along the edges. Because he says, I am the Lord your God. This is God speaking to Moses. Moses met with God in the tent of meeting. Moses had this unique relationship with God. You must fear your God. I am the Lord. And he's, he's, re, he's reiterating, if you will, that these are from, these are from, from God. So how do we know that he got, I mean, it, it's, it's there in scripture of going, this is God speaking to Moses, and these are commands that we're going to keep, that he then writes it down as what we talked about, the Pentateuch. That's why the Pentateuch is called the law, because it's not simply just about the Mount Sinai moment. It's also about Israel's history and their relationship with God and the loyalty in which they were called to as well. Does that answer your question? Yes, up back, uh, Judah, and then Kelly. Yeah, so um, the law uh-huh. was meant to say, like, you know, yeah. how do they do justice for that? Right? It's a great question. Um, because Judaism was very bloody. Uh, it was yes, it would appear that way. But, uh, it was no longer the law. And I'm pretty sure uh, that, that PETA would have an issue if they tried to reinstate this, right? Um, <laughs> how are they? Yes. 
It's great. Um, by trying to get behind the law, that well, the purpose isn't to fulfill the do's and don'ts, but we're going to get behind it. But the problem is, you, you can't get behind it without Jesus. So there's a dilemma. And it's about now, without the blood, it's about being a good person and trying to do, and, and earning your righteousness. You can't earn your righteousness. We're all damned to hell. If we, like, we need Jesus. So it would, it's a, it's a works-driven um, re- re- religion. Does that answer the question? Pastor Kelly, you were going to tag on? I, yeah, I was just going to yeah. point out um, that when you're, like, if you're looking in Leviticus and even yeah. the numbers and all, most of the chapters start off stating, then the Lord said to Moses, great. give the following instructions. Yeah. Then the Lord said to Moses, you know, give the following instructions to the people. Yeah. So you can see that that's where the laws are coming from, that the Lord has given them rules to give to the people. Yeah. And it's in a meeting, and I mean, you look at, you can go back and look at the where he's at. You can, yeah, yeah. The Lord says the most. You, you look at one of the things I love doing the shred in in January, where you go through the whole Bible, is when you're going through these, you see how relational God is and how patient He is. Sometimes we we can we can get so dualistic in our thinking that the Old Testament. Um, The law's evil. I mean, the law's not evil. The law's our history. The law is how we've been saved. The law, well, the law's not how we've been saved by Jesus fulfilling the law. And so we don't want to think of the law as evil. There's so much richness in it. I think even tonight, as we're learning and talking through, and I'm getting impassioned about some of the things. I'm like, man, this is beautiful. And I'm thankful Jesus fulfilled it. Another question? Pastor Jeff, or, yeah, Mr. Tom and then Jeff. Yeah. We have a Jewish friend and I asked him specifically about the sacrifice. Right. And he said they're not going to do that again until the temple is rebuilt. Yeah, because you can only do it in the temple. Yeah. And so there's this, uh, you know, so you have all these rabbis that are still around. They have their own schools. They have their own. Uh, I follow a couple of like rabbis on TikTok, you know. Um, and they all have their different ways of interpreting. Like, this, is, this is how we are, you know, so because the temple wasn't built, uh, in essence, like when the Jews were in ac- exile into Babylon, well, how, how did they get forgiveness of sins? They couldn't, they, they couldn't shed blood unless on the altar in the temple. So they, they would view themselves in the lens of continuing to be in exile right now until the uh, temple is, is built. Make it only be built in one place. And the Jews don't own it. <laughs> uh, Muhammad's guys own it. And so, uh, you know, Jeff. Yeah, I know that the Jews believe that the law only applies to them and not to the Gentiles. Yeah. You know what's really interesting is, this goes back to a shred thing, is the invitation. Like, like when God chooses 
Israel, it's not meant to be like this exclusive club. Like he chooses Israel so that they will bless the nations and draw the nations unto God. Now, Israel took it as like this, this exclusiveness. Now, I, I want to be very, we need, I want to be very careful because in the language that I'm using, people have, have used it to cause anti-Semitism and such in the earth. So that is not my heart. That is not, you know, so when I, when I, when I say Israelites or, or Jews in that context, like you understand what we're talking about. Like that's not, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, what, was, what was the question? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, yes, there's one specific. I, I and I, I just I didn't because I, I'm really and I'm really intrigued about that kind of stuff. Like I love watching the History Channel and I like watching about other religions and uh, I, I find. I don't know, maybe we'll cut the recording off here, but like I find watching documentaries on cults like really interesting and I'm like, what in the world? You know, because it, it just shows you like how deprived we are as humans and like what, we're looking so much for purpose that we'll just throw ourselves wholly into like some of the craziest stuff. Um, I don't know, I, I'll research some a little bit and, 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 and get back to you, yeah. Anything else? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Everything kind of points. The 600 laws are pointing to loving God, loving neighbor. That's what Jesus said. You want to fulfill? What's the greatest commandment? Loving God. And the, the second is equal to this. Not meaning, we, we, and it's interesting when you, this is another talk from the day, but when you, in, historically in scripture, with lists, one, two, three, four, five, when we think of lists, we think of hierarchy, that one is better than two, and two is better than three, and three is better than four. But that's not how, they thought then. So it's like, well, loving God is better than my neighbor. But you can only love God when you truly love your neighbor. You can only love your neighbor as you truly, when you truly love God. And, and they are equal. It's not one's, well, I, I love God, so I don't have to love my neighbor. Like, look, my neighbor is like the cherry on top. Like, I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus, but I neglect my, my neighbor, so I don't have to worry about that. Um, because we think of things in lists. So even, and this is another, and this kind of leads into something that we'll talk about uh, for future Sunday schools. But um, when we talk about like the Trinity, the first person of the Trinity is who? God the Father. Second person, God the Son. Third, God the Holy Spirit. We think of them in a list. That one is greater than two, two is greater than three. Well, that's, that's heresy. Like uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are co-equals. And so a lot of it is sort of language barriers 
for how we're conditioned to think now versus, and so it's kind of like breaking out of these barriers, if you will, of thinking so that we can truly understand um, kind of what, what's happening. So, yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, not renewed uh, in, so no, that's just the easy, that's the easy short answer. Um, but doesn't mean that, you know, so, so there's a reason why the early church uh, eventually had to depart from Judaism and stop meeting in the synagogues. And because when you live under an old covenant and you're under a new covenant now, you realize like, like none of this applies to us. The majority of everything we did is anti-Jesus because it's anti-fulfillment. So, so there was, there's a reason that, 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 I mean, Paul tried to go into the synagogues and he preached. There's a reason that they eventually went to Philippi in Corinth. Because the message was given to the Jews first. They rejected it, given then to the Gentiles who accepted it. Um, what was the first question? Yeah, the festivals. So, yeah, so they'd be a part of the law. So, the Passover, so all of this the Passover was, the instruction of the Passover was given so that the generation that, that came out of Egypt would give a, from that, that not only they would remember, they would celebrate it, but that every generation after that would hear the testimonies of what God did for them. The purpose was for a testimony to be given so that they understood who this God was that they served. That even if God didn't do it in their lifetime, he did it in their ancestors' lifetime. Does that, does that, make, that, that make sense, right? Cool. All right. Any other questions, uh, you can uh, 